The looming debt ceiling will occupy the first order of business for Congress again this week. Yet budget hearings and other regular stuff will also go on. We get the outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, let's start with the debt crisis, the debt ceiling crisis. I mean, uh, late last week, both parties kind of took their marbles and postponed. They didn't cancel but they're not playing marbles. So what can we expect starting there this week? We'll be looking to see if the meeting that was postponed is back on track for early this week um, so that Speaker Kevin McCarthy on behalf of the Republicans and President Joe Biden on behalf of the Democrats can kind of find a path forward here on the debt ceiling. Um, staff has been working behind the scenes and having what sounds like potentially fruitful conversations, but they weren't there yet, obviously, by the end of the week and postponed that meeting so that it you know, they didn't want to have a meeting that wasn't going to be fruitful. Um, there are three other leaders involved here, but there seems to be a lot of deference to Biden and McCarthy on this. We'll be watching very closely for tea leaves on what might shake this loose and whether it's, you know, a debt clean debt limit increase over here, plus these spending debates and other policy debates on the side because Democrats haven't want them linked. Republicans have want them linked. So we'll see how that plays out as well. Right. It's to the point now where federal employees and retirees and people on Social Security and just about everybody's starting to to realize this could actually hit home personally. Yes, potentially. And one of the questions is, what is the X state, as it's known, which is when the government will no longer have any room to maneuver here? And we haven't really ever gotten over that point. And so there's a lot of discussion about what that means. How does the government deal with the payments it can make versus those it can't? So it's a, you know, it's something where economists don't want to get to that point. Obviously, government officials don't, like Treasury Secretary Yellen has said, we don't want to get to this default point. So um, there, there will have to be a reckoning if we get that far. But, um, you know, there's also some uncertainty about whether it's right at the beginning of June, a little later, or maybe even later into the summer, as the Bipartisan Policy Center said. So a lot of question marks. Yes. And probably the Bloomberg monitors from the other part of your company will go haywire in the meantime. So that's a good indicator to watch how serious this is getting. And the body language from the earlier Oval Office pictures was kind of strange, too. McCarthy hunched up at one end of the sofa and Chuck Schumer looking behind him and at the other end of the sofa looking disengaged was uh, Mitch McConnell. I mean, it's really a the picture said it all. <laughs> yeah, it did. And it's a different picture than we're used to. I mean, missing from that's Nancy Pelosi, obviously, who was there for so many years. And um, McCarthy now has a much more prominent place. So um, it, it's just a, a different vibe. And obviously, with the Republicans controlling one of the chambers, they have a lot more influence in this than they used to. McConnell has put McCarthy up and said, we'll do it. He can work out with Biden. So you're right. It, it was a meeting with five principles, but really two that are really going to be key to getting this done. And what is the handicap that you're hearing on the Hill for that bill from Senator Rick Scott of Florida, which would make all federal employees at will employees, not just the senior executives. That's caused a lot of discussion among the academics and the people that follow civil service. But it hasn't really leached out to the public, I don't think, in a big way. Right. I mean, there's been ideas like this before. And you had what was a Schedule F under the Trump administration that would change the way that some parts of the civil service would operate. Um, you know, it's it's hard to see a bill like this moving forward with the current combination of Joe Biden as president, a Democratic Senate, even if it's very narrowly controlled. You do have a Republican House. There is a version of this bill over there introduced by Chip Roy, who is a fairly conservative member of the body there. but has you know pushed his ideas and maybe we'll look to to see that advance so i'm not sure that that bill will move forward 
in the current environment. But I think it does lay a marker down maybe for a future conversation, especially if you had, say, Republican control of both chambers and the White House, that might be a much easier sell. Although I sure Senate Democrats would try to hold the line on that bill, at least most of them, um, and deprive it of the 60 votes it would need in any capacity there. But it doesn't feel ripe in this environment. But, you know, things can happen. Right. But even if it passed, it would probably not be by a veto proof margin. So therefore, you know, it's going to be vetoed. Right, right. I, I would think unless it was stuck in something else, that's always the thing. But I would think that would be a hard sell for a lot of Democrats. Well, there's always the NDAA. That seems to be the magnet that collects all the shavings. We are speaking with Lauren Duggan. He's deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And the House has an interesting way of marking Police Appreciation Week, Law Enforcement Appreciation Week this week. Yeah, that's right. They're going to take up a resolution, as they often do, you know, celebrating police officers and paying tribute to those who lost their lives. But there's also a bill just out of the Judiciary Committee that would tell GSA to create a program to allow retired handguns to be purchased by federal law enforcement officers. So, you know, if you had a gun and they're not going to use it anymore, you could perhaps buy it. So that's one of the bills they're taking up. And they're also tied to last week's immigration debate. I'm going to have a bill that if somebody who's not a citizen, an immigrant assaults or admits to assaulting a police officer, they could be deported. So those are two of the bills that they're bringing up next week as part of their law enforcement week focus. Interesting. Well, GSA sells a lot of other surplus goods. You can buy an old Chevy Lumina or something if you want to. So I guess maybe a used firearm. And frankly, those probably been well used. So you might think twice about whether you want something that's halfway worn out. And Mayor Bowser is interacting with Congress. She's kind of caught between her own city council and the will of Congress as she sees it from her standpoint as mayor of D.C. That's right. The House Oversight Committee, which oversees D.C., as Congress does, has had a hearing already with some council members. This one's focused on the mayor and the police chief talking about all the issues that are before it. Crime has been a big focus, as we know. There's already a bill that was signed into law to cancel um, some of the criminal code changes that the city wanted to make. There's a potential Senate vote this week on the policing changes that were made by the city. And this is an opportunity for this House committee to question the mayor and and others about what's going on in the city. Um, Obviously, the mayor and the council were a creation of Congress back in the D.C. Home Rule Act. So they can, when they want to, assert their oversight over the city, bring them forward. Um, Obviously, they review the budget, they review the law. So this is part of that continuing trend of looking at what's going on in the district and perhaps drawing national attention or national implications about it. And meanwhile, back to the Senate side, some of the appropriations hearings, as if there was normal times, those are still proceeding. Those are still proceeding. Um, The big one this week is tied to an idea that Democrats have been pushing of a new China competition bill. There was a hearing last week with some officials from the state commerce and defense departments. This one is going to be the big the big cheeses in all three of those departments, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, Gina Raimondo, the commerce secretary, and Anthony Blinken, the um, state, the secretary of state. So they're going to come up and talk about China, the U.S. relationship with them as part of this groundwork they're laying for another bill that follows last year's legislation to support the semiconductor industry and do other things. So China remains a focus on Capitol Hill in both chambers and in lots of different places. And this is one place where we're going to see it this week as we wait to see what happens with all the spending bills that are obviously tied into what's happening with that broader debt limit debate. Lauren Duggan is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show 
the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today.
That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.